Good morning. Hey, like Ryan said, we're glad that you're here this morning. I want to thank you for filling out that Connect card and letting us pray for you and your family. Before we get started this morning, though, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we are grateful to be in your presence. God, I'm grateful that you love and care for each one of us. I'm grateful to be able to open your word and for us to learn from your word. Father, we believe that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It can pierce our mind and our hearts, and we really can leave this place different than when we arrived. But Father, where we're weak, would you make us strong? And where we struggle to hear, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might experience your glory this morning so we encounter the living God and leave here different because of it? We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, with a show of hands, uh, how many of you have ever had a dream that just, I mean, you, you just thought it was real? Like, that has to be real, only to wake up and realize, man, it wasn't real, I can't believe that. Anybody ever had a dream like that? What about, anybody here ever had a dream that uh, when you woke up from it or you were woken up from it, you thought to yourself, I just want to get back to that dream because I want to know how it ends because... <laughs> It's like a really good movie, and I got ripped out of it, and I'll never know how that dream was going to end. I, anybody? Yeah, like me too. I, I have uh, very vivid dreams, and I, as far back as I can remember, I've always had really vivid dreams, and uh, my wife will tell you that sometimes my concepts, my dreams, collide with reality, and I can't always tell the difference. Uh, this goes back a long time. One of the most vivid times where my dream and reality kind of blurred was in college, my sophomore year at Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, after my freshman year, my, one of my close friends and I decided we wanted to have um, just random roommates the next year, just kind of to meet new people and kind of hang out. And so I said, hey, just send anybody my way and I'll room with them. Well, the school picked an incoming freshman named Kevin and I was a sophomore. Well, the first night we met, I had driven from South Florida and I, I was in the car for about 17 hours. I was just exhausted. It was about 11, between 11 and midnight. And I said, hey, man, I'll unpack my car tomorrow. I'm just going to go to bed. I'll take the top bunk. And so after knowing Kevin for about six minutes, we went to bed. <laughs> and so I'm in my bed, and I'm sleeping. And middle of the night, I have a dream. And I can tell you everything about this dream. I had a dream that a spider about this big <laughs> crawled out of the ceiling tile above me on the top bunk and lowered itself right onto my chest. And I'm laying there and my whole body tenses up like, oh, and it crawls off of me and I'm like, oh, this is all a dream. Goes down the wall and as it came out of my sight, I, in reality now, rolled off the bed, <laughs> off the top bunk, and in the dark, pulled the mattress off the bunk bed and the sheets and started going crazy at that point, Kevin wakes up and is like, what's going on? What are you doing? And I said, dude, the biggest spider I've ever seen in my life is crawling down towards you. So Kevin gets out of his bed in the dark and begins to shake his mattress and pull his sheets off looking for this spider. And I'm not kidding. It hit me in that moment. There's no spider. Like, th that was a dream. And so I turned the lights on and he's like, what's going on? And I said, Hey, man, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but there's no spider. That was just a dream, and I just kind of came to, and he was like, one word. That's all he said. Seriously. 
and he put his bed back together, and he went to, to bed. Later on, I got married, and uh, we moved into the house that we currently live in. And a few years ago, one night, very vividly, I had a dream. And in this dream, I'm, I'm laying in bed, and in the dream, though, everything felt so real because the house looked exactly like our house looked. Only somebody was coming into the window in the living room, and I knew their intent was to hurt my family. I just knew it in the dream. I said, they're coming in here not to rob us, but to hurt my family. And at that point, my, the concept and reality blurred. And I got out of bed and ran out of my room, down the hall, into the living room with the intent of stopping this person. Someone's coming in your house, you're going to stop them. And my goal, I'm going to stop them from hurting my family. And I run, and as I round the corner of the hallway into the living room, I came to. And I realized, there's no one coming in the house. <laughs> like, that was a dream. Like, I really remember that. Like, okay, that was a dream. Oh, well. And I turned around to go back to bed. I walk in the room, and my wife is sitting up in bed, wide-eyed, completely awake. What's going on? And I said, oh, it's nothing. You can go back to sleep, <laughs> which wasn't the best thing to say to her. Like, no, what happened? You have to tell me what happened. I said, well, I had a dream. Like, it was just a dream, but I dreamed someone was coming to the house to kill you and the kids, and I had to stop them. And that, too, was not the best thing to tell her. <laughs> She's like, you can't do that. I was like, what? Like, I, I was going to, you, you're not allowed to dream like that. You can't get up and move in the middle of your dreams. It creeps me out. And she was really mad at me. And I said, hey, you know what? Like, calm, like it's okay. She's like, no, it's not okay. I said, look, the next time I think someone's robbing the house, I'll send you. Okay? <laughs> like, no big deal. All right. <laughs> so now, maybe your dreams, right, are not as vivid as mine. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, and maybe they don't collide with reality, but I don't think it's a leap to say you've probably seen the line blurred between concept and reality in your life. It's not hard to imagine that in the culture we live in. We live in a culture that promotes showing people a concept, but not the reality. I mean, look at social media. For all the good it brings into the world and into our lives, it promotes that we would put forth a concept that does not necessarily have to line up with our reality. I mean, how many of you have ever felt the pressure to put forth an image, to put forth an idea, to put forth a concept of your life that really didn't line up with what was going on in your heart or in your home? And the pressure to continually perform, and, do, and what? when it happens, when we realize that my concept of my life and the reality of my life and in my heart, they're not coming together, what do we do? We work harder and longer hours to create the dream. I mean, we just want to get back to the dream. And we sacrifice time spent with family to make more money to create the dream. Or we get involved in other things to help us, make us feel better. We make sure that we surround ourselves with the right people, live in the right community, do the right things, just so we can achieve this concept of life that we've created. See, this is why it's so important what we're studying in Galatians chapter 5. This is why it's really important for us to understand what we've been walking through. And if you've missed any of the sermon series, particularly the last two weeks that David walked us through, I can't encourage you enough to get online and listen to it. The Apostle Paul is writing in Galatians, and he comes up with this list of characteristics that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And we've learned that the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of Christians desires to stir things up and, and have these characteristics really define your life. Here's what's fascinating about the text, though, when you study it. He's writing to an entire group of people. And so these characteristics, he desires, they describe not only the individual Christian, but the entire church. These characteristics that we've memorized and become so familiar with he wants to make sure they're not just a concept to you, but they actually define your reality, that these are real about you. They're not just a dream or a hope or a thought or an aspiration, that these actually describe you and the way you live and the way we live collectively together as a church. And so I want to do something this morning. I want to read through these characteristics slower. 
And now here's the temptation. Many of you longtime church people have memorized this passage. And so your temptation is when I put this up on the screen in a moment, you're going to read through it. Like, I remember, yeah, I love joy, peace, patience, kindness. I got it all. Like, don't do that. I can't make you, but I want to encourage you. Just slow down. Really think about these characteristics I'm about to read. Do these describe your reality? Do these describe the way you're living life, the way you're experiencing life right now? Are these descriptors, things that you would say, yeah, I, I've experienced that, or yeah, that's, that's the way my life is uh, going right now. So let's look at this. Galatians chapter 5. Paul says this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Does love describe the way that you're living? You're experiencing life? Joy. Peace. Don't go too fast. Let it sink in. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Are these your reality? Or is this just a concept? Today we're going to hone in on one of them, in particular this word peace. This idea of peace, what Paul talks about when he says peace, is the peace that we have between us and God thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus. Our sins are not counted against us. But let me ask you this. Would you say that your life right now would be described by the word peace? And the Holy Spirit wants to produce peace in your life, not only so that you experience it, but so you can offer it. The Bible calls us to be peacemakers. How can you be a peacemaker if you're not experiencing peace? So peace is important, but if you're like me, a lot of seasons in my life, peace has been more of a concept than a reality. It's described more as an idea for me. I live in a world that I find really difficult to see peace really lived out, a godly, true peace lived out. I mean, living in a world where there's constantly wars over ideologies and land and ethnicity and race and money and fame and power and sex and greed, all of these things driving what we do and what we want to accomplish, peace is really hard to come by. In a culture where disagreement or the desire for healthy debate is viewed as hatred and bigotry, peace is hard to find. What about living more practically in your home? What if you live in a home where peace is really hard to find? Why? Because there's yelling and name-calling and lying and deception. How can you have peace when your boss seems to be out to get you and your wife doesn't seem to really love you and your kids definitely don't respect you? How can peace describe your life when that's your reality? just feels more like a dream or a concept, not something you can actually attain. What about living in a world that's so fast-paced and expects so much from us that we have to produce and perform and produce and perform and produce and perform, and the last thing on our mind is peace, and we're just trying to keep up with everything, so much so that at night we need a drink to relax and a pill to help us fall asleep. Anxiety just presses in on us, and we feel overwhelmed, and peace just doesn't feel like something that would describe our reality. So yeah, Rob, peace is a concept more than a reality to me. And yet, it's on the list. Which tells us that no matter how hard it is to attain, the Holy Spirit wants to produce it in you. God wants this to be a gift he gives to you. The, the, the Bible describes God's peace as going beyond our understanding, which means we don't have to be able to fit it into the category of making sense all the time. It can be a gift. So how do we attain that? Well, I find great comfort in knowing that we're not the first group of people that have ever battled anxiety and frustration and defeat and failure and war and emotion. It's all throughout the Bible. 
Currently, we're reading in our Read Scripture app, which is our Bible reading plan. I'd invite you all to get on your devices and just kind of follow along with us uh, through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a perfect picture of someone who had really no real peace, encountered God, and then his reality and the, this concept of peace and reality kind of collided, and the glory of God was to provide him some real peace. And so we're going to study a little bit of his life, this encounter that he had in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is encountering God and seeing God the way God wants us to see him, and out of that, he encounters some real peace. So Isaiah chapter 6 is where we'll be. If you have a Bible, you can turn your device on or open the Bible to get there. It'll come up on the screen as well, and we're just going to study through this text and learn about this peace that we all desire but can't quite figure out how it's to be lived out. Beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, we're going to pause there. We, we cruise through these texts, right? King Uzziah, we learned from 2 Chronicles chapter 26, was a really good king. He's a pretty incredible leader. The Bible actually tells us that he led for a long period of time, which wasn't always the case. But not only did he lead for a long period of time, he led through a, a season of prosperity. Things went really well. God actually blessed his leadership as he blessed other people. But somewhere along the line in King Uzziah's life, God slipped from being his ultimate reality to more of a concept. Someone he could call on when he needed them. And that developed a different pattern in his leadership. And over time, enough was enough. God had to do something about that and intervened. And through a series of events and different things that took place, King Uzziah ends up getting leprosy. And now we read here, King Uzziah ultimately dies. So it would have been 729 B.C. time frame. And now you have this kid, Isaiah, saying, hey, this is the time frame where this thing happened to me. Now, Isaiah, you need to know about him. He's a young, um, very accomplished, very um, capable leader. He comes from royal blood. Church tradition tells us that his dad's brother was a king, and so he had royal blood in him, and he was a strategic thinker. He was trained well and educated well, and he had achieved much at a young age. And so now this great prosperous king dies, and this season of prosperity seems to be coming to an end. If you're Isaiah, and you're trained, and you're young, and you're, you have all this potential, your mind is naturally going to go to, here's what needs to happen next. And you're probably going to start thinking strategically. Here's how we need to do it. Here's what needs to take place. Here's what should happen. And you start thinking through that direction. And then one day he goes into the temple for worship. And God shows up. And he begins to talk about his encounter with the glory of God and how it collided with his concept of God here in chapter 6. He's going to continue in verse 1. He says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. We just got done singing that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. See, while this earthly king is dying, Isaiah gets the glimpse of a king that will never die. Well, this prosperous era's ending, he gets an idea that, hey, there's one that will never end, that can never be affected, and it changes him completely. The Bible's teaching us here that these seraphim, these angelic creatures, they're not your hallmark angels. They don't fit nicely on your shelf or hang from your rearview your rear mirror in your car. Like you, these aren't hallmark angels. These are powerful angels. We know that because when they speak, earthquakes happen. That doesn't happen when I open a hallmark card, all right? So these are like really powerful, and they're exposed to the glory of God. Well, the Bible teaches us that created things that are exposed to the glory of the Creator can't withstand it. So what are they doing? 
They're covering their eyes. They're veiling their faces. And they're covering their feet in the Bible where it says, take your shoes off for the ground on which you are standing is holy. This is a posture of humility. And now they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is the first of two things I want to point out to you in this first part of the text. The first is the, the repetition of holy, holy, holy. They continue saying it now. My experience in church, and I became a Christian as a senior in high school, and my experience in church, even a little bit prior to hearing that, this idea of heaven and all that, was this idea that you, you sit on a cloud and someone plays a harp, you or someone else, and you just continually talk about the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy. And I thought to myself, that just sounds so boring. Like, really? Like, I don't want to spend eternity. That's not 60 years. That's like forever. And I'm just going to sit there and repeat, holy, holy, holy. Like, I just feel like it would get boring, right? And then it dawned on me, this, this past week and a half I've been studying this passage, maybe I'm just not seeing it right. And maybe I don't get it. You know, that happens, even to those of us that have to study and preach. Like, maybe I just didn't get it. And so I dug a little deeper into the passage. And come to find out, repetition in the Hebrew language is a really important thing. And most of the time, they would repeat something once, and that would emphasize that you needed to pay attention to it. So if he would have said, holy, holy and you're reading this in Hebrew, you're going to stop and say, hey, he wants us to see something here. To add a third descriptor, holy, 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 is kind of like a showstopper. Like, hey, stop everything you're doing. This is a whole new category beyond our normal use of this language. you got to pay attention to this. Holy, holy, holy. And then it hit me. They're not bored. They're not bored repeating this over and over and over again. There's no boredom there. They are completely fascinated and captivated by God in this moment. It's like tunnel vision. It's like they're so clued in on God that nothing else matters. They're not thinking about, well, what else do we get to do? Do we have to repeat this all the time? Isn't there anything more fun to do? Anything more enjoyable? Answer my questions, please. No. In that moment, nothing else in their existence matters to them. If you were to use a human comparison, you would say, I'm not thinking about what would be more fun in this moment when I'm exposed to God's glory. I'm not thinking about my marriage or my parenting or my 401k or my job or uh, my plans or my retirement. Nothing in this moment. It's tunnel vision. Everything else blurs out, and all I can do is focus on this one moment here. And then they bring their focus of holy, 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 this, this captivation with this other key word in the passage, and it would be the word glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, this word could also be understood to mean weighty or heavy. And so picture it like this. If you take a giant rock, anybody ever done this? And you go out to a kind of a smooth body of water and you take this giant heavy rock and some of you have done this and you launch it into the water and it splashes into the water and this heavy rock, which is heavier than the water, impacts the water, what happens? Ripple effect and splash and it sinks and you call that a water quake by definition. The same thing is true of ice. If you have some ice and you were to take something heavier than the ice and you were to drop it onto the ice, it's going to break through the ice because it's heavier. That's what glory means, literally heavier. It's, it's like saying this is the important compared to the unimportant. This is the heavy compared to the light. This is the reality compared to the concept. This is real. This is heavy. Nothing else compares to this. You can't ignore it. You can't look past it. You can't be distracted from it. It's glory. This is what happens when you ascribe glory to something. And so they're saying the whole earth is completely filled with his glory. Here's the point. When something that is heavier, more important, collides with or impacts something that is lighter or less important, the impact can't be ignored. It changes everything. And this is what they're saying about glory. Now, we ascribe glory to many things. 
We ascribe glory to celebrities. We ascribe glory to success. We ascribe glory, would you say, the most important thing is this. The, the heaviest thing in my life is this. We ascribe glory to our marriages and our parenting. We ascribe glory to our bank accounts and our plans and our vision for the future. We say the heaviest thing, the most important thing, the thing I'm focused on, the thing that I am now saying receives my glory are all of these other things around me. They're the heaviest thing in my life that is around me. And here's the thing. This is why I think it's so difficult for us to imagine the holy, holy, holy scene being captivating. Because for our entire life, we've tried to ascribe glory to things to help us with our deepest problems and our most hurtful pains. And they didn't last. And so instead of giving glory to that, I give glory to this, and I give glory to this. I'm trying to find deeper meaning. So this idea that the glory of God, giving him the glory, would be strong enough and last long enough to hold my deepest pains and problems doesn't work in my mind because nothing else ever has. But yet for them, when they give it to the proper source and they get to see the glory of God, nothing else compared to it. It changed everything in their life and they're completely consumed and captivated by it. But when we don't do that and we're ascribing glory to different things, we're influenced by a lot. So in ministry, I've heard a lot of people say, hey, you can't really believe the Bible anymore. You can't really uh, listen to the Bible anymore. It's kind of dated. It's not going to really give you true peace. True peace is found outside of that. You need to kind of pay attention to what's going on in the world, and we can define the Bible different. We can reinterpret uh, certain passages based on the culture that's around us. That's what's most important. The culture deserves the glory right now because it's going to be our truest sense of peace if we could just understand it. That's real. So we pay all of our glory to a cultural moment, like a moment in time, and it changes, right? If you don't think it's going to change, here's the deal. Like, you really think your great-grandchildren are not going to be embarrassed by some of the things that you believed in, the way that you are, when you look at some of the traditions and, and things that your great-grandparents did? That, that happens. Like, and so the culture can't define it because it's ever-moving. But when we say culture deserves the glory, what we're really saying is, I don't have a real God. I don't, have, I don't worship a God. I have a God concept. And God, if he's a concept in your life, can fit into your agenda, your plans, your vision. But he doesn't shape them. He fits into them. You shape him. And in that moment, your glory is heavier than his. You're heavier, he's lighter. Your vision, your ideas, your parenting, your marriage, your money, all that stuff is more important than God's glory in your life. And so you just kind of fit God in when you can. I like this passage. I don't like this passage. I like this truth. I don't like that truth. And what happens is you shape the God concept. You don't have a real God that can really challenge your deepest held beliefs and contradict you and make you shake your life up and change you. And yet, this is what happened to Isaiah. You see, in that moment, God could not just be a concept to him anymore, this idea that might fit his political strategizing. God became a reality, not to be ignored. It was this giant splash in his life. God became his ultimate reality. Jonathan Edwards is a Puritan, uh, famous Puritan preacher, and he said this. He says, when you talk about the characteristics of God, some of them really benefit you. So you can really make God a concept because you like certain things about him. And for instance, he says this, the power of God is something you can get excited about because selfishly, God's power benefits you. Like, I have a powerful God, more powerful than any other God, so he can do things. The wisdom of God is something that you can get excited about selfishly because God's wisdom really does benefit you in a lot of different ways. I have a wise God who can help me solve my problems. The mercy of God is even something that you can get excited about in a selfish way because God's mercy has benefit to you, right? Because now, God, because of God's mercy, I don't have to feel guilty, and that feels really good to give up guilt. He said, but when you come to the holiness of God, it's of no benefit to you at all. 
It's an insult to you. It's a threat to you. Because it's not something that benefits you because you are in that moment having to surrender to say, you're holy and I'm not. You're big, I'm small. You're strong, I'm weak. When I see your holiness, the way your holiness should be seen, all I can do is know that I don't live up to that. It doesn't benefit you. And so people that give God glory and see God in his holiness, what they're doing in that moment is they're seeing God for who he truly is, not just what he can do for them. And this is what happened to Isaiah in this moment in chapter 6. He encounters the glory of God, and it changes things. And so, like Isaiah, when God's glory impacts your life, your life changes. Everything about you changes. It shakes up your entire life. Look what happened to Isaiah, verse 5. And I said, he sees God's glory, and he sees this in this moment, and then he says, man, woe is me. I am undone. I'm lost. I've got nothing in this moment. He's completely leveled. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The book of Job tells us, I've heard of you, Lord, with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. And he saw him with his eyes, and there was nothing else that mattered in that moment. He wasn't thinking about the past. He wasn't thinking about the prosperous era of King Uzziah. He wasn't thinking about the future. He was in this moment, fully present, dialed in. Nothing else mattered. And for the first time, he saw, no matter how much he comes from royal blood, no matter how intelligent he was, how many resources he had, or how capable he was, he could offer nothing in this moment. It leveled him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. This moment is like taking a giant rock and tossing it right into the heart of Isaiah's life. You know, when God's glory shows up in the Bible, there's always an earthquake that accompanies it. In Exodus chapter 19, on the top of Mount Sinai, God's glory comes, the whole earth shakes. Acts chapter 2, God's glory comes on the day of Pentecost, there's an earthquake. And what happens physically also happens spiritually. When you see God's glory, when you see God for who he is, you have a self-quake. Your whole life gets shook up. It changes everything in your life. You can't think about things the same. You don't view marriage and parenting and money and life and mission and value and purpose. You view none of it the same because it shakes everything up in your entire life. And in this moment, Isaiah is completely and totally undone. He has nothing left. But the beauty of this passage is the moment he sees God's glory, he recognizes his own sin. And then he gets to experience God's grace all in the same beautiful moment. And God not only destroys him and his identity, but lifts him up with a brand new identity. It's a beautiful picture of life change in the life of Isaiah. And this is what happens. See, when you have God as a concept, you fit him into your plans. Lots of people get religious. They start going to church and reading their Bible and singing the songs and switching the radio to K-Love all the time and doing all the right things and saying all the why because they need God to help them achieve their goals. And this God concept fits really good into my plans. Only until tragedy hits or difficulty comes or things don't work out the way we want to. And then, then who's getting the glory? For Isaiah, there was no way to place glory on anything else from this moment on. This launches his ministry. This changed his entire life. And here's how it did. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, God's come after Isaiah's experience, the being undone and being restored, and now he's like completely blown away by experiencing the glory and the grace of God. God says, who will go for us? And what is his response? 
Here am I, send me. But here's what I love about verse 8. It comes before verse 9. And verse 9 is where the job description comes. Isaiah agrees to go before he ever knows where he's going. He agrees to do whatever he needs to do before God ever told him what he was going to do. Imagine that. He's in this moment, and it's like, I will go. I've seen your glory. Nothing else matters. It doesn't, tell, it doesn't matter where you tell me to go, who you tell me to talk to, what you tell me to do. I'm in. I'm all in because I've experienced your glory, your goodness, and your grace. I don't need the job description. I need you. So send me anywhere you want me to go. And then God tells him where he's going and what he's going to do. Changed his entire life. And this is what happens when you experience the grace of God in your life because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, you can experience the grace of God in your life. So my question for you today is not, do you have peace? My question for you guys today is this. Do you see God? I mean, do you really see God? Tim Keller summarizes the gospel so beautifully, and he says this. The gospel is this, that in this moment, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. We see our sin, and it is just awful. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I mean, think about how beautiful that statement is. This is Isaiah 6. I am undone. Woe is me. I've got nothing. Yeah, you're right. You're leveled. Now let me pick you back up so you understand where this is coming from. You understand where the glory in your life should be given. So I want to leave you with this because it's kind of hard to like, okay, what do we do? How do we live this out? I don't want it just to be a concept. I want this to be your reality. So let me share a few things with you. One, godly peace, real peace in your life doesn't come from your circumstances. It doesn't come from what you achieve. Godly peace comes from seeing God from the right perspective. That's where peace comes from. So it doesn't matter. Like when, you're, when you're at peace with God and you have that peace in your life because you know what Jesus has done for you, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. Your plans don't line up the way that you thought they should. Life throws you a curveball. The enemy comes. There's tragedy that hits your family. And you understand that yeah, life might be difficult, but nothing this life throws my way, nothing the enemy brings into my life can take the peace that's been given to me by the glory of God. Like That's a gift I've got from him that Satan can't take. That's real peace, that despite circumstances and situations, I'm okay because of what Jesus has done in my life. So let me practically lay it out for you this way. I used to grab, uh, buy a Bible at the beginning of every year, and I'd, as I studied the Bible, I would like highlight it and underline it and write in it. Well, on the inside flap of every Bible that I bought, I would write a list, right? Because I'm a list guy. That's what I like to do. And I thought, this is a really good, maybe, maybe, ah, maybe many of you have done this, and you've seen lists similar to this. Number one on my list, God. Number two, Sarah. It's my wife, not some random person. That's my wife. <laughs> Number three, Caleb, Abby, Luke, and Noah. That's my kids. Number four, New Hope. Believe it or not, you've never climbed up to three, two, or one. You're always going to be a four. And I would write this list, right? And then it would remind me throughout the year where my priorities should be and what I should focus on. But I ran into some problems with that. Like, if I was in a season during the year where I was focused in on number two, my wife, what was I not thinking about? Number one. Or if we were in a season where we're running to different school functions and sports appointments and the kids are just going in a million directions and, and I'm focused on trying to be a really, really good dad, what am I not thinking about? Number one. So what if, based on what we've studied in Isaiah 6 and this desire to have the Holy Spirit produce peace in our life out of Galatians 5, our life looked more like this. Where at the center of my life is God. 
And it's his glory. I am consumed. Holy, holy, holy. I just am consumed with him. Out of that, the ripple effect of that weight in my life, the ripple effect of that weight hitting the quote-unquote water of my heart, just a boom, the ripple effect, Sarah's there, my wife. And then my kids, and then the ministry he's called me to. So now when I look at Sarah and I interact with Sarah, it's not about being a good husband. It's about preparing her for eternity. So I want to get you ready to live forever with your creator. I want you to see God. Why? Because I'm seeing him right now, and I'm experiencing life with him, and it's a ripple effect. So you see these arrows. They kind of just pour forth. Everything in your life now pours out of the glory of God and your experience with him. So now I'm going to be a better husband, yeah, because I'm going to get her ready to spend her forever with her creator. And when I look at my kids, even on the days where devotion time is more like discipline time, right, and, and it's difficult and it's crazy and things are out of control, I can look at them and say, man, I just want you to get ready for your forever. Because holy, holy, holy. It's not boring. It's all-consuming. It ripples into every other part of your life when it's his glory. Let me close with this illustration. Tim Keller, the same guy who we just read the quote from, is one of the most accomplished authors of our day. He is brilliant, and he has had an incredible impact for the gospel all around the world. But he said back in 1970 at a camp is really where his life was changed forever. And so you guys think about how weighty this experience was. He said in 1970 at a Christian camp in Colorado, a woman Bible teacher... Um, gave an illustration that forever changed my life. So you're going to have to bear with me here. Here's what she said. She said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, okay, so picture that, one sheet of paper, 92 million miles, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. Think about that distance. 92 million miles is one sheet. Now you've got 70 sheets high. And the diameter of the galaxy, she said, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Miles. 310 miles high. Let that sink in. So one sheet, 70 pages, 310 miles high. She said that's how big the galaxy is. She said, yet the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust inside the universe. And then she quoted Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the power of his words. Think about that. Think about how big that is. Jesus holds everything together with his words. And then she asked a question that he said changed his life forever. And it's a question I pose to you this morning. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? To be a concept? just kind of fit into your agenda, your goals, your plans. So what about you? Is Jesus just an idea? Just another thing to help you get where you need to go? Or has he shook up everything in your life with his glory? Has he changed you from the inside out? Is the ripple effect of your life based on the glory of God? Is he just an idea, or is he the Lord and Savior of your life, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one who changes everything? Is he a concept, or is he your reality? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so good. God, when we see your glory, we're leveled. We've got nothing. We're just undone 
got nothing to offer, and yet you still, with your grace, you just instill such value into each one of us and a purpose. You save us and send us. Father, my prayer for everyone here today is genuinely, as, as a family of believers, as a group of Christians just wanting to go after Jesus, my, my prayer for all of us is that we would wrestle with this question of whether or not you're just a concept to us or you are our reality. You are at the center of everything that we do. And from that, from our experience with pursuing your glory and understanding you and letting you be the heaviest thing, the weightiest thing in our life, that we would live a life that might have an impact for your glory. And God, my prayer is that when we pursue that, you would give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for communion, um, I want to give you another thought. When, you, when you're preaching and you do a lot of studying, it's really hard to narrow down what you want to share with everybody. It's like one of, I, I found it to be just a huge challenge. And so I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew this past week. And uh, through the lens of Isaiah 6, something fascinating happened. Now, Jesus told us on the night before he died to let the Spirit bring to our mind the words that he taught us. Right? That's what Jesus said. Like, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to bring my words to the front of your mind. Then he said before he died, hey, do these things. Take communion to remember me and what I've taught you and what I've done for you. Well, I get to Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus, after he's resurrected, he comes and says, gather some people together, some who are struggling, you know, God's a concept, right? And, and some are like, no, he resurrected, that's my whole reality. And he says these words in verse, chapter 28, verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And maybe for the first time, I paused after verse 18 before jumping into 19 and 20. And I caught it, maybe for the first time, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's, I control the universe with the, word of my, with the power of my word. That is, all the glory belongs to me. That is the showstopper. That is the holy, holy, holy. And in my mind, I thought my response to verse 18 without knowing 19 and 20 should be, here am I. Send me. Because you just resurrected from the dead. Like you defeated death. Send me. And then he might say, well, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. And don't forget, I'm with you every step of the way. So as we take communion this morning, my, my prayer for you, my request of you, is that you would wrestle with that. Have you seen him? Let communion remind you of his glory. And as you take communion, be reminded of your response to it as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus the life he lived, the perfect life that he lived, the death he died that we deserved. But thank you that he was more powerful than death. He defeated death. He rewrote the narrative, and he instilled value and purpose and love into us because of that. Father, as we take communion, may we, may we be reminded of that, God. And out of the overflow of that remembering, that active remembering, may we leave this place today changed. Let the ripple effect of our life come from the impact we've had with your glory. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.